Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Esther has come to London because her mother is dying, her death a matter of time, of weeks or months, not luck. Her mother's 83 and has lived her life, Esther knows, but still the word dying drops inside her like a stone. Since she was last in London, Esther has lost her son, quit her job, left her husband. The world has changed, one by one. The moorings have been cut free. Welcome to New Books and Literature a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm G.P. Gottlieb, the host of this channel. Today I'm talking to author Margot Singer, who won the Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction, the Reformed Judaism Prize for Fiction, the Glasgow Prize for Emerging Writers, and an honorable mention for the Penn Hemingway Award for her story collection, The Pale of Settlement. Her work has been featured on NPR and in many publications, such as the Kenyon Review, the Gettysburg Review, Agni, and Conjunctions. She's a professor of English at Denison University in Granville, Ohio. In Underground Fugue, a richly layered novel, Singer weaves the lives and inner thoughts of her four main characters. Like a musical fugue, they come together and then separate. Sometimes they're harmonious and other times they clash in counterpoint before slowing into a cadence. I'm delighted to welcome author Margot Singer today. Hi, Margot. Hi, Galit. Thanks so much for joining me on this New Books and Literature podcast. Could you please start with a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where'd you get your degree, and what do you do when you're not writing books? Absolutely. So I grew up in Boston. Um, I was born in Boston and grew up in the suburbs just west of the city. I went to uh, private schools. My mother was a, a teacher. Um, and then I didn't go very far away for college. I went to Harvard just down the road. Um, so basically stayed in the orbit of Boston, the center of the universe, according to my family, um, for the first 20 or so years of my life. Um, I studied history and literature in college um, and spent all my time at the Harvard Crimson, the student newspaper, where um, because I was so intimidated by the amazing um, student writers, I didn't make it up past the ground floor business office and spent most of my time selling advertisements and then becoming the business manager. Um, and I spent so much time there that I, I felt I'd given my education a bit of a short shrift and I applied for fellowships as a senior um, I was uh, lucky enough to win a Marshall Scholarship to, to Oxford. And so off I went um, to England for two years where I got a master's degree in international relations. Um, and I was recruited in my, in my second year there by the international management consulting firm McKinsey & Company. And so I went from grad school to New York City, where I worked for 10 years uh, as a business person in, in the consulting world. I became a partner um, and eventually started writing. Um, I, my first writing class uh, after high school, I guess, was a class I took through the Gotham Writers Workshop. I found a flyer in a, a plastic um, drop box on a street corner in, in the village and started taking writing classes. And uh, in the late 90s, I moved to Salt Lake City. Um, I moved there uh, for the guy who I married 
And when I found myself in Utah, I decided to go back and try my hand at writing. I got into the MFA program at the University of Utah, um, and it was just an incredible, liberating experience um, where I started to write seriously um, for the first time. I was in my uh, 30s, and I soon switched into the PhD program there at, at Utah, um, wanting basically to have more time to write. And at that point, having um, a baby, which changed everything, as, as all of you listeners know who have children. Um, so I finished my, my PhD and went on the job market um, and landed here in Ohio, where I've lived since 2005. I teach at Denison, a liberal arts college, just east of Columbus, Ohio. Um, and I've been, been writing uh, ever since. My first book was a collection of short stories called The Pale of Settlement. It was um, the stories are mostly set in Israel. My father um, was born in Czechoslovakia, grew up in Israel. My grandparents lived there, and I still have cousins who live there. Um, and so those stories came out of that experience of being um, an American, but also having very cl- close um, family ties uh, in Israel, although the stories are, are fiction. Um, and then I, along the way, I also put together an edited uh, book called Bending Genre um, that I edited along with uh, the wonderful writer Nicole Walker, um, which is a, a collection of critical essays about creative nonfiction, um, which I also write um, when I'm not writing fiction, although I consider myself mostly a fiction writer. Uh, and I teach mostly creative writing um, here at, at Denison, where at the moment I'm the director of the Liska Center for Scholarly Engagement, which is our fellowships office. So things coming, have come around full circle. I help students apply for fellowships like the one that I had to Oxford um, all those years ago. Um, when I'm not teaching or writing or um, editing Fulbright essays, uh, I'm a runner, sort of. Um, I have two children who are incredibly serious competitive runners, but I try to get out and, and move. Um, and I still sometimes play the piano, although not nearly as, as seriously as I did back when I was um, in high school. Well, I'm glad to hear that you play the piano because I know your uh, character Esther plays the piano very beautifully, I might add. And I was a little jealous that she could pick it up after 20 years of not playing it. Did you do that too? <laughs> I'm jealous of her too. Um, I, you know, I, I practiced, I played quite seriously in high school. I went to music camp in the summers. Um, and then, you know, it sort of dwindled away in some ways during, during my time in college. I still have bad dreams sometimes about um, showing up for a lesson and not having practiced. And then I really didn't play much for a long time. Uh, my children are both wonderful musicians. My daughter, who's in college, plays um, the piano and the oboe. And my son, who's a senior in high school this year, um, plays the violin. So I started playing again when they were little and taking lessons, and I would accompany them. Um, but I, you know, so it's my dream when I'm retired that I'll practice seriously and, and get back to a reasonable level. But um, probably not quite as good as I imagined Esther being in the in the book. <laughs> What's the imagination for? Exactly. Uh, so I read that you were sitting in the car in your driveway years ago, uh, in 2005, when you originally heard the story of the man who washed ashore somewhere in the north of England. So how did that story evolve into this novel? So that's a very good question. Um, the answer is slowly. Um, I, I do think of that um, sort of NPR driveway moment as being the genesis of the image that prompted the process that led to the novel. Um, like a lot of writers, I started with 
with that image that just kind of piqued my curiosity. It was a story of the strange man who had um, turned up soaking wet, wearing a formal suit on the shore in on the southern coast of England, on the Isle of Sheppey, near Sheerness. Uh, and strangely, it turned out he wouldn't speak, maybe couldn't speak, didn't seem to have any identifying marks, um, no identification on him. Um, it was a very romantic tale. There had been movies made, right, about amnesiac musicians. Um, and, and people really responded to this story. So by the time NPR or the BBC or whatever I was listening to picked the story up, thousands of people around the world had called in to the missing persons helpline in the UK that had put out the story trying to figure out who this, who this mystery man was. Um, he played the piano, uh, apparently, according to the news reports, like a virtuoso, um, but he was, he was sort of mute and didn't seem to have a past. And I think I was intrigued by the story of this man, but also just by the response. Um, all kinds of people thought they recognized him, including um, at one point a woman who thought he was her ex-husband, <laughs> amazingly, but he wasn't, and nobody recognized him, um, although eventually he was recognized. It's a true story, and, and he was identified. Um, but at that time, he hadn't yet been identified, and I just thought this response, the kind of the way people were projecting onto him this desire to solve the mystery was very interesting. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is crazy. This would make a great novel. And then the immediate next thought I had was, no, this would be terrible for a novel because this is a character who doesn't actually speak. <laughs> so hard to imagine him being a character in a novel. But the image of him, uh, of that, I guess, the mystery, and also of, of somebody who has sort of washed ashore, who's uh, seemed to be trying to remake his life in a new place, in a new way, um, resonated with me. It's the, you know, a, a description of this piano man as the tabloids dubbed him forms the prologue to the book. He turns up very briefly as a character um, in the book. Um, but although he's in no way the main character, nor is the book really about him. But the image of this man was what got me thinking about the, the idea of the fugue. There's um, two definitions of the word fugue. Um, men, those, those who are musicians will recognize the musical definition, um, Bach having been one of the most famous writers of, of fugues, which is a composition and a counter of the, in the form of counterpoint, um, where you have, instead of having a melody um, with, with chords accompanying it, you have multiple overlapping lines of melody um, around, like row, row, row your boat is the simplest form of a fugue. Um, but there's also a psychiatric meaning of fugue. Um, the term fugue state refers to uh, a dissociative disorder, um, a type of um, kind of amnesia where people wander away from home and then kind of come to themselves days or weeks later uh, with no memory of how they got to the place that they've traveled to. Um, and so I found myself wondering whether the piano man was suffering from some kind of a fugue state. Uh, and then that got me thinking about the word fugue uh, and about musical fugues. And ultimately, that ended up um, forming the structure of, of the novel, the idea of um, voices that overlap uh, in, in the novel form, much like in the musical form. Um, but the writing process was, was a really long one. I started writing the book um, in 2007, 2008. Uh, wrote a draft, threw it away, put it away for a while, started again. Um, you know, so it was a long, a long process and an evolution. Um, but, but that's what I think of as the beginning 
of that process. Mm-hmm. How, how did you choose the title Underground Fugue? Well, I, for a long time, the working title was The Art of Fugue, um, after Bach's famous unfinished composition, also called The Art of Fugue. Um, but I have to be honest, when our president uh, came to, uh, I guess it was before the election, but while he was um, running for office, the art of the deal was on everybody's mind and nobody liked the residents, the residents. Uh, and the one of the dominant images of the novel is this idea of the underground, um, the tube bombings that you referred to in the introduction, the underground bombings on the subway system uh, are the climax of the novel's um, trajectory. Uh, one of the characters likes to explore underground spaces in London. Um, one of the characters escapes through underground coal mines from Europe in the 1930s. So there are a lot of images of underground, a lot of connotations that I was playing around with. So it just, it's a little strange. It just seemed to really fit with, with the uh, stories of the book. I thought so too. So Underground Fugue is written from the perspectives of four of these four neighbors. Can you say a few words about each of them and their relationships to each other? Sure. So um, the first and I guess sort of the main character is Esther. We, the book starts with her. She's returning um, to London where her mother lives. Her mother is quite old and in her last days. Um, and Esther uh, is, is the, the character that brings the others together. Um, She was the voice that I started with. Um, Esther and her mother live in what the Brits call a semi-detached house. Um, We might call it a duplex in the United States. So imagine two identical halves of a house with matching front doors and steps leading up to those doors, um, sort of mirror images of each other. So on one side, you have um, Esther and her mother, Lonya. And on the other side, uh, there's um, the other two perspectives, um, this doctor, um, Javad, who's a neuroscientist, and his teenage son, Amir. Um, and Esther and uh, Javad meet, kind of walking down the steps to their houses and uh, strike up a relationship. Um, and Esther also comes to sort of see and, and know a little bit um, Javad's son and to wonder about him. And their lives entwine over the course of one summer, the novel set in the summer of 2005. Um, it opens in April and ends in August of that summer. Mm. So you wrote somewhere that structure your novel on Bach's Art of the Fugue drove you to, quote, focus on image patterns rather than on themes or plot, unquote. And also that you spent a lot of time simply looking for connections. So can you tell us about the patterns and the connections in the book? Sure. So, you know, um, the novel has famously been called kind of the loose baggy monster, Henry James's famous phrase. And I had been writing mostly stories before I tackled this novel, and I had no idea how hard a novel might be um, to structure. And so one of the one of the challenges of the of the early drafts was getting to know the story, getting to know the characters, but also finding a structure. And because I'd been thinking about fugues, um, I got excited about using the structure of the fugue. And so obviously the the four voices are analogous to the voices um, in a in a composition of music, uh, counterpoint of interwoven voices, but also, the idea of um, 
of interwoven images or or themes. And so I, I started, I almost mapped out like on, as, as if on a musical staff, um, the image patterns that were emerging in the early drafts. And that, that just helped me dig deeper and figure out what the, what the novel was about. Um, it's actually impossible to write a, a novel in the form of a fugue, although I didn't know this at the time, but I later did some research and learned that a lot of writers have tried to do this. Um, writers from, you know, Dostoevsky to Virginia Woolf to um, Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley wrote a novel in 1928 called Point Counterpoint, which is explicitly an attempt to create a sense of harmony and modulation by juxtaposing characters and themes. But in music, you know, the the themes... Um, the voices can be played simultaneously. Each theme enters um, as an exact um, mirror image or replica of the one before. And if you did that in writing, it would be a very strange piece of writing indeed. You'd have characters literally talking over one another. Um, and so it's not, it's not possible to mimic the form precisely. But creative writing is about creating patterns of, of images and finding those metaphoric resonances as you go. And so the form gave me a way of, of doing that. And um, it was a very rich and generative um, process for me. Mm. What can you say about those images, ideas that are sort of like musical leitmotifs that reappear throughout the book? So off the top of my head, there was uh, flying water music, maybe also being underground. Did I miss anything? What can you yeah, say? I mean, I think um, the images that came back to me, uh, flight or flying heights, and then also underground, uh, a sort of theme of grayness, um, of music. Um, so yeah, th- those, those are absolutely the images. Um, and again, I don't, as, as you write, it's not necessarily a conscious process, but more one of writing and then looking back and finding those connections, the kind of repetitions or rhythms um, that form the texture of the narrative, especially the idea of flight. The word fugue comes from the Latin word um, fugero, which means to flee. And I guess in, in music, the, the different voices are kind of chasing each other up and down the, the musical staff. And the idea of fleeing is central to every one of the characters' stories. Um, Esther obviously has fled New York um, to come back to London. Her mother's memories of her youth are of fleeing Europe on the eve of um, the Nazi invasion of Czechoslovakia. Um, Javad has fled Iran. His son is somehow searching for ways out of ordinary life. Um, He's an urban explorer and um, explores all the off-limits um, tunnels and and high buildings in in London. So that's an example of the way those images of fleeing and chasing um, kind of recur throughout the the finished narrative. Can you talk about how everyone seems to be both running away and trying to connect? And do do any of your characters succeed at connecting? What can you tell us about that? That's the real question that this book, I think, ultimately is trying to answer. What does it mean to come together with another person who is different from yourself? Uh, These um, neighbors in London in 2005 
um, are not untypical of the kinds of connections that we're that we struggle with. I think more and more um, of late in this time of migration and of mistrust of of others. Um, and so, you know, I found myself when I was first starting to think about this project much closer to the time of of nine eleven, um, when I think we were all frightened and um, suspicious. And, you know, you'd find yourself in cities and crowded places and airports, you know, looking around and wondering if anybody was up to no good. Um, I can remember riding the subway in London and in Paris, um, lots of armed guards around, um, you know, kind of scanning the crowds. And I, I felt that there was a real tension there um, as a kind of a liberal person. I think of myself as being, you know, open-minded and tolerant, and yet that, that fear was still there. And so um, those were some of the questions that motivated the stories and these, you know, this bigger issue that you raise of, you know, how do you connect? How do you dis, you know, when, when does disconnection um, happen and, and when does it kind of trump people coming together? Uh, so the book can be read different ways. I, I think ultimately I'm pretty optimistic, but I also felt that sometimes these um, sometimes it's just really, really hard for people to come together. And that can be within a marriage or it can be the stranger who lives next door. Um, but there's always the hope and, and sort of beautiful moments along the way, even when ultimately connections don't work out. Esther thinks of herself also as, as open-minded, right? And then That's right. And then when she starts to be suspicious, um, it, it really concerns her. She's wondering how she could be so small-minded about this one thing. So was that from you? Was that a personal? I th- uh, the, the question of whether she should or shouldn't be suspicious of her neighbor and his son, whether they will connect romantically as friends, is the central question that the novel explores. Um, it, this is a novel. This is not in any way autobiographical. And in fact, one of the real challenges of writing this book was that it, uh, unlike the story collection, which was not autobiographical, but very much rooted in my own experience, nothing about this novel uh, was really rooted in my own experience, except perhaps um, the fact that I played some Bach when I was younger um, on the piano. So these characters came to me in my imagination, and I really had to get to know them. Um, and so Esther's experience of, of feeling suspicious, um, I think, was uh, rooted in my own you know, very, very tangential and brief experiences of, you know, like riding the subway in Paris and in shortly after 9-11 or whatever, but uh, not an experience that, that I actually had, um, but really one that came out of the questions that I was asking. Um, and like all fiction is sort of a collage of, of things you know and imagine and read about and, and see in the world around you. Mm. Almost as an aside, Esther tells us that her mother baptized her in the Church of England, but she doesn't seem to me, she didn't seem to be part of any religious community or follow any specific custom. So I was wondering, why why is she having so much trouble crossing the cultural divide with her neighbors? So Esther... um comes from a Jewish family. Her parents were Jewish. They left Europe in the on the eve of the Second World War. They escaped um, barely. And Esther has grown up in England initially and then coming to the States 
very much in the shadow of survivors of the Holocaust. She doesn't know the whole story that the reader comes to know that, that Lanya, her mother, remembers, but she knows a lot of it. And she considers herself Jewish, even though she was technically baptized. Um, this is a detail that actually uh, connects to my own family. I have cousins whose parents escaped um, Europe during the war and who were baptized, but who don't consider themselves Christian, but who also weren't really brought up in the world um, within the culture of, of Judaism in the way they might have been. Um, my cousin once said to me that she sort of should have been raised in a very different world. Um, if things had been different, she would have been born in um, Czechoslovakia and not in London, and her parents would have been much more observant um, although not particularly religious in, in the case of my own family. Um, and so that detail was true for a lot of people who left, you know, who, who escaped Europe and came to the UK. There was a lot of fear of what would happen if you um, remained um, visibly Jewish. So that, that's really where that detail comes from. Esther then marries um, a man, an American who's Jewish. Her son has a bar mitzvah. Um, she's not observant, but she, she is she feels that she's Jewish and she's lived in New York and in this Jewish culture for a long time. Um, and so the fears of Muslims, the sense that they're different from her um, still pertain, even though she's extremely open-minded and open to um, the relationship that, that she finds herself in. Um, but at the same time, her, her mother comes from a different world and we see that in the novel, um, these kind of, you know, the, the prejudices that, that come from a different time and place, perhaps. You've written elsewhere that you assumed for a long time that the anti-Semitism that had driven your family out of Europe to escape the Nazis in 1939, that it had been left behind. So when did you stop thinking that? And how did that affect your writing of this novel? I think the last oh, uh, 10 years have been a time when a lot of people have woken up and said, well, gosh, you know, have things really changed as much as we thought? Um, I can't say that I've had any personal experiences with anti-Semitism, but we all watched the footage of Charlottesville last year and started asking, you know, wait, are they saying Jews will not replace us? You will not replace us? What is going on in this country? Um, there have been increases in anti-Semitic uh, attacks and violence in Europe, uh, pretty sharp increases in recent years, including in, in the UK. And there have been incidents in this country too. So I think, you know, post 9-11, post Trump, we're asking these questions more and more. And it's, it's very disconcerting having, um, you know, grown up in the generation that was going to be, you know, have left all that behind um, to be, to be kind of back and wondering are we now in a in the situation my grandparents were in in the 30s? Um, am I going to have to make the kind of decision my grandfather made in 1939 to leave, to get his sisters and their families out of Europe, to get himself and his family out of Europe when others said, no, it's going to be fine and stayed? Um, I, don't, I know a lot of people who are, who are wondering that, sort of idly maybe at the moment. Um, things aren't really that bad, but they're there. And that was a question that I was also really thinking about a lot when I started writing um, the book. It's not really about anti-Semitism, but I think that is a theme that 
that resonates with anti-Muslim prejudice, with, you know, any prejudice um, that we're experiencing at this time. Uh, so let's go back to some of the other characters in the book. It was a whole wonderful cast of colorful people. Did Lonya's elderly British girlfriends represent anything to you, or are they just simply girlfriends? Well, I wanted to show the world that that a diff, you know, the, the earlier generations lived in in the UK and and elsewhere, but in, in this context. Um, a much more, you know, I think insular community than the younger generation finds itself in today. Um, in the scenes you're referring to, Lonya's girlfriends who've gathered around to, to sort of hold her hand and be with her in her in her dying days, are are very concerned about anti-Semitism. They're concerned about the Muslims who immigrated to London. They're they're worried. Um, and so they, their voices are in counterpoint to Esther, who finds them to be quite racist and annoying um, and small-minded uh, in their own way. Um, let's see, Lonya's nurse, Zofia, she seemed like a solid character. Yeah, I mean, these are minor characters. She's a, a Polish nurse. There's a large Polish immigrant community in London. Um, and so... That's just another uh, repetition of the, these these ideas of, of the immigrants that make up our society um, today. Mm-hmm. Esther's husband back in the United States, good guy. She doesn't really say anything bad about him. Yeah, I mean, she's she's left, and they've suffered uh, a loss. Their their son has died. Um, and they just haven't been able to come back together after that tragedy, although they've been connected in, in marriage for many years. Um, so, you know, he's, he's sort of the, the past that she's trying to leave behind. But, of course, you know, you can't ever really uh, leave it behind. He keep, there are a lot of phone conversations in this novel. <laughs> he keeps calling her on the phone, um, and she keeps trying uh, to avoid having to talk to him. It's very human. Uh, Javad, we haven't spoken much about him, but he's a really interesting character. And his ex, he has quite a lot to say about. Is She's a an alcoholic, I think. Right. So he's also divorced, um, and although his his ex uh, does does make an appearance in the book. Um, he's he's come to the U- he came to the UK after the revolution in Iran, studied medicine in the UK and married an English woman. But um, their marriage fell apart. Um, so again, it's it's these layers and layers that you find in not in the not in the baggy monster of a novel of people whose relationships have, um, you know, have have frayed, um, but who can't quite get away from each other because they share a child, they share a past, um, and they have to, um, you know, come come to terms with their difference and also with their connections. It might be in the baggy monster of the novel, but I don't usually get to ask the author of the novel all these questions about every single character. So it's really wonderful for me. Um, we have just Flutzi, Monia's brother, Hugo. He never, he's gone, but he's a big presence in her life. So one, you know, the, the central question that Esther has to grapple with has to do um, with with the with the boy who lives next door, um, and with questions of betrayal, I guess. And so, Esther's mother's um, memories of her 
brother and the circumstances under which he and she were eventually separated during the war kind of mirror um, some of those those themes in a very different um, context. Um, Hugo is, again, a, a kind of minor character, but is the... Um, he's what, what Lanya's mind keeps returning to uh, in her last days, the, the un, unresolved um, conflict, I guess, that she's trying to, to work through. A lot of lovely people in this book. And I, I enjoyed it so much. It was a wonderful read. Um, and I've taken up so much of your time. I'd like to ask you the traditional new books question. What are you working on now? Um, so after having spent many years immersed in this long project, um, I'm working on a bunch of different things and trying to see where they, where they come out to. But I'm mostly enjoying writing shorter forms at the moment. I'm writing um, an essay right now. Um, I'm thinking about returning to writing about Israel. Um, as I said, my, my family uh, lives there. And I know the place well, although I've always been in a kind of liminal situation of not speaking Hebrew very well and not really being Israeli, although I've spent a lot of time in the country. Um, but I have about a half a collection of creative nonfiction, of essays that I've been accumulating over time. Um, and I hope to pull those together into a book sometime soon. I also have about half a collection of short stories that I've been accumulating and hope to pull together into a book sometime soon. So those are the most immediate projects. And I really would like to get into a novel, but um, it's not something that you can just will. I've learned I, you have to just be writing and writing and see what begins to emerge and take shape. Um, so I hope to do that. I have a, a sabbatical coming up in about a year for which I am um, in advance, incredibly grateful and just really dying to have that uh, expansive time in which to um, focus on the writing and not on, you know, all the other day-to-day -day busyness of, of life. It sounds like a wonderful plan and I'll look forward to, to reading all three possible books when they come out, the novel, the essays and the short stories. Anyway, thank you so much for sharing your time with me, Marco. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking to you too, Galit. Thank you. Bye. 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 And thank you for listening to this podcast from the New Books Network. Once again, I'm GP Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature. And today I've been talking with Margot Singer about her book, Underground Few, published in 2017 by Melville House. Join the New Books Network and learn both about my upcoming podcasts and those of other hosts in a variety of subjects. Goodbye until my next conversation for the New Books Network.